This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been reading Julian Barnes for a very, very long time. Flaubert's Parrot was the first book that I came to, and I've been following him since. Elizabeth Finch is his 25th book. 25th. And I want to open with something, Julian, that you said. It's the, it's the very first line of this novel. She stood before us without notes, books, or nerves. And I'm wondering if you would introduce Elizabeth Finch to listeners, please. Elizabeth Finch is a writer, a minor writer in her 40s, I guess, uh, who teaches in evening classes at uh, Outpost London University. She teaches a course called Culture and Civilization, which sounds rather sort of grand and formal, but she manages to make teaching uh, an informal and provocative process. She she doesn't give them a reading list, or if she does, it's uh, it's optional. Um, she doesn't even ask them to make notes, and she likes to approach things not in a in a conventional way at all. For instance, um, she she doesn't say uh, Goethe said. She says uh, a famous person in the. 19th century said that when he was on his deathbed said that he had only been happy for a quarter of an hour of his life. She just presents that as a statement. What do you make of it? What do you think of it? Let's discuss happiness. Let's discuss how we remember our lives, how we remember the extent of happiness. Because if she said, Goethe said this, they'll, they'd think, oh, well, you know, he's a great sage. So obviously he must, he must know and he must tell the truth. And Oh dear, have I been too happy? <laughs> and things like that. Um, so she likes to sort of wrong foot them, but in the same time in a way that makes it easier for them. Mm-hmm. And of course, as with all teachers, some, including the book's narrator, who's called Neil, respond uh, deeply, almost viscerally to her mm-hmm. uh, and admire her and, and indeed love her almost from the start. Um, and he naturally uh, assumes that everyone else has the same reaction. <laughs> and then he, he gradually discovers that they don't, um, and that all teachers evoke a variety of feelings in their pupils. And and by the, and it comes by the very end of the book, he goes back to one or two um, of his fellow pupils many years down the line, long after Elizabeth Finch is dead. Mm-hmm. And they have very different memories from his. Mm-hmm. But most of the time... Uh, we're, we're led by him and his perception of her. She is teaching adults how to think, which I quite like. Usually when you see a student-teacher relationship in literature, it's someone in their formative years who's being influenced by a grown-up. And Neil isn't... I think Neil is in his 40s, isn't he? I mean, he's a failed actor. He didn't quite... Okay, so he's in his thirties, but he's he's not that far off in age. From no, Elizabeth. I, we don't know the exact figures. He's had his life, you know. Mm-hmm. He's had his life. He's had one failed marriage. He's been an actor. Um, he's been. Uh, he's worked in the restaurant trade. He's grown um, mushrooms. In <laughs> uh, another failed. He's he's sort of one of those people who's had several stabs at life, mm-hmm. and uh, then in their 30s, being a bit beached 
thinks, mm-hmm. you know, I want, I want to be serious. I want to study something. And there are many people like this. And some, some don't take it up and some do. And he's the, one of the ones who did. And, and he, 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 he says that you know, after a bit, when he'd been in, her, he's been in Elizabeth Finch's class, um, he felt as if he's being led towards a center of seriousness inside mm-hmm. himself, which I think is what great teachers do mm-hmm. uh, or can do. I've never had one, <laughs> alas. She's Quicksilver for him. She's Quicksilver. Yeah. She's absolutely the thing that sets him up. I've had a couple of teachers that have set me on interesting paths, but I'm always sort of open to seeing what the world brings, and I seem to have that quite a lot from writers mm-hmm. um, who I may or may not know in real life. <laughs> I mean, for instance, I didn't have, a, I never had a, an inspiring teacher. I mean, I had I had good teachers, I had, mm-hmm. I had bad teachers, I had a range of them. Um, uh, but I did for my old friend Ian McEwen, for example. Mm-hmm. He had he, he he's an example of someone, a classic example of someone who had an inspiring English teacher yeah. who, who who showed him the way, mm-hmm. and he'd never looked back. And in fact, in his next book to come out, which is called Lessons, which is coming mm-hmm. out in the states, I guess, quite soon as well, he brings in this teacher by name and and pays homage and respect to him. And he told his teacher, who's a hundred, um, or maybe a hundred and one, that he was going to do this in the book. And did he want the teacher to um, give him a different name? And the teacher said, no, I absolutely want my own name. So his own name is in the book. And between Ian writing it and the book coming out, the teacher died, which is sort of sad, oh. but somehow neat. Yeah. I, in my research, I discovered you did have a professor at university, though, who was like, you might try journalism, as if that was not a good thing. And you have written nonfiction for years and years and years. And there is a moment in Elizabeth Finch, the second section of the book, where Neil has finally delivered his essay for the end of the class many, many years late. Yes, and after her death, yes. At, yeah, all of this. But it's about Julian the Apostate. Hmm, hmm. And I'm curious as to why Elizabeth has this connection to Julian the Apostate. And I've read the book a couple of times now. I'm, I'm, I think I, I think I understand. But at the same time, I'd love to hear you explain yes. how Elizabeth ended up with Julian. Well, I think the connection is being in a spirit of contrariness towards your own times. I mean, there's a moment when Neil says of Elizabeth Finch. Uh, she didn't seem to she 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 didn't seem to be um, present in the live, present in the normal way in the living living world in the current world, and yet she didn't seem old fashioned. It was more as if she was sort of above time or beyond time, like some ancient goddess. He says very specifically, um, and though you know that's an exaggeration, she's a very human person. Um, she is not of her time. She does not indulge in, she takes the longer view. She does not um, indulge in, um, she's the last person to have a box set of videos and things like that, um, or or be interested in sport and all sort of trivial things that many of us are very interested in. Um, and so I guess one of the connections is that um, during the apostate, who was the last pagan emperor of Rome, uh, was also someone who was against his time. 
though uh, in a more extreme way. And just as she, later in the book, um, has a sort of public chastisement by the press, um, he has a, a public chastisement for uh, 1,300 years after his death by being demonized by the Christian church. He was, he was he's got the apostate. The apostate um, in, back then, now it means someone who changes their religion, but back then, it, uh, and indeed during the apostate did, but back then apostate was another word for devil, for Satan. So he was just called Satan. Um, and he was an exemplar for the Christian, uh, the Christian uh, popes and the Christian empire um, of uh, the worst sort of evil and paganism um, that could exist. Uh, and it's a, he has an astonishing afterlife. And this is partly what fascinated me. He was, he was killed in the Persian desert in 363 AD, having been Roman emperor for only 18 months. Um, his dying words, supposedly, we should always <laughs> mis we should always mistrust famous last words. Uh, his, his dying words supposedly were, "Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean." Pale Galilean being Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. and this is supposed to be an admission of both military and theological um, mm -hmm. acknowledgement of, of failure. Uh, of course, the quote was made up uh, several decades after his death by, mm -hmm. by a historian. Um, but it was a, it was a line that I first came across in a Swinburne poem about 10 or 15 years ago. And I was just struck by it. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. And Swinburne and many other writers from the 16th century onward thought of um, Julian the Apost Apostate as a lost leader, as a great hero, as uh, someone who was against the Christians very firmly, but didn't persecute them. He persecuted them mildly, which mm -hmm. they hated. They <laughs> wanted to be persecuted strongly because they wanted martyrdom. Elizabeth Finch is such a Julian Barnes book to me, because here we are, we have this very slim introduction of who she is and who Neil is, and you do it in very quick sentences. We don't get Elizabeth's complete story. We don't need it. We don't need her complete backstory no, to know who no. she is as a teacher. And we're pretty clear on who Neil is <laughs> very quickly. And then all of a sudden, we've got this diversion. I think as you get older, you, you want to cut to the chase more. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> Time is shorter. The thought of writing sentences like, um, as he crossed the uh, brutalist concrete uh, quadrangle of the university of what's it face neil reflected on his forthcoming meeting with her no 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 this is not a romana clay i want to be clear about that but elizabeth does share some resemblance to the bookner a booker award-winning novelist anita bruckner and you two were legendarily friends for quite a number of years and but it was lunch right like we we're friends we were, mm -hmm. we were we were good friends, mm -hmm. uh, and it was entirely on her terms. Uh -huh. okay. um, it, it's, I mean, I, I met her first, um, and it's a strange start for a friendship. When we were both shortlisted for the Booker Prize in mm -hmm. 1984, I was shortlisted for Flaubert's Parrot, and mm -hmm. she was shortlisted for Hotel du Lac. And um, 
I remember going on holiday with my wife to provincial France and sitting under a tree and reading Hotel du Lac and mm -hmm. saying, afterwards, well, it's quite good, but I certainly won't lose to that book, which is oh. <laughs> how I, I, got, I got the proper punishment for hubris mm -hmm. and I lost to that book. Mm -hmm. But then I realised um, how wonderful its author was. And, and we, we met a few times and then it sort of settled down into a sort of six monthly lunch. She'd always be at the table before I got there. She would always be smoking a cigarette. She would always have a very light main course and a cup of black coffee and she'd smoke another cigarette. It lasted about 75 minutes. And I always, I always wanted to be on my best behavior for her. She made, she sort of, I mean, and this is a parallel with the book, but she sort of brought out the best in you. You wanted to tell her things that would interest her. Um, and at the same time, you knew there was a mark you couldn't overstep. Um, I remember once ringing her up and saying, I've seen this program at the National Film Theatre, mm -hmm. and it's all the very first uh, cinematic footage of Paris. And I was about to describe it, and she said, no, I don't think so. Um, which <laughs> which was actually quite brutal. You know, it was quite brutal, but she she had laid down the grounds. Um, there is in Elizabeth Finch something of Anita Bruckner, and I think what it is is the, is a sort of moral rigor, a truth telling, uh, a refusal to compromise. I mean, there's been a lot of fuss in the British press about you know Barnes remembers his old friend Anita Bruckner. Um, no, Barnes doesn't, um, and Barnes can't think of anything more. Uh, boring than a Roman I play about the mm -hmm. uh, I sent the book to my um, an Australian friend who's a mm -hmm. writer, Murray Bale, who knew Anita very well. He may, probably knew her more than I did, better than I did. And he wrote back and said, yes, a very faint whiff of Anita. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's as far as it goes, that it's like, you know, her scent lingers in the room after she's gone. Mm -hmm. um, but she was certainly at the starting point, yes. I think Neil also has moments where he's underestimating Elizabeth. Actually, I'm just going to quote you again because that's yes. the easiest way to do this. Also, by a kind of protectiveness, because in a way we sense that she was unfit for the world and that her high-mindedness might make her vulnerable. And this was not meant to be patronizing. So, I mean, Neil, all best intentions, and yeah, he's patronizing, but vulnerable is not a word that I would ever use to describe Elizabeth Finch. <laughs> no, no, no. But he is picking up on her, her unworldliness. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. a certain, I mean, in some ways she's incredibly worldly, but, in, but she doesn't interact with the everyday world. Um, and, and while that looks and sounds patronising from Neil, uh, by the end of the book, um, and uh, she, Elizabeth Finch has, has suffered a sort of public shaming mm. at the hands of mm. the press. And so that's the sort of thing that he, in a, in a gauche way, mm -hmm. thinks he must try and protect her from. It's ambiguous, that attitude. Of his, you know? <laughs> it's not just patronising. It's, it's also tender, you know. This is what we do in relationships. Mm -hmm. We often... Um, see a person's strengths, but also mm -hmm. half suspect their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses, which may be our invention, but um, they're, they're, they're part of a, and 
of what this is, which is the kind of love relationship. It's very clear early on that Neil is in love with Elizabeth in a platonic way. I mean, he just loves her as a human. Yes. But the stories he tells himself about everything push him more towards the unreliable narrator than the person Neil thinks he is, I think. In a funny way, most unreliable narrators think they're reliable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think he's, he's one of them. I mean, I didn't, I didn't pitch him to myself as an unreliable narrator. He obviously is, is prejudiced. And he's prejudiced greatly in favour of Elizabeth Finch and is half in love with her. And, and later on, other, other students, fellow students, say, uh, oh, no, you know, she wasn't a really good teacher. No, no, she was so old-fashioned, you know. She didn't have any understanding of theory for a start and stuff like that, which both co- contradict him and, in a way, confirm him uh, in his views. The way Neil approaches history... He has no real sense of history until he sits in Elizabeth's class and starts to put together pieces. And it's, as you said earlier in, in the conversation, that he is looking to engage with a new way of learning and he wants to just do things differently and he wants to have almost a project. And, and he does talk about being the king of unfinished projects. <laughs> That's what his daughters call him, yes. Right. Yes. And there's so much conversation, though, about history and the way we see it and the way it shapes us and the fact that history is something that happens in the moment, that it's not just this dry thing that follows us around. No. And that, to Neil, is revelatory. He's never thought about the world that way. He's just sort of like, well, this is the thing I was taught. Yes, yes, yes. And, and that is what you, what you tend to think if you don't take history very seriously and if you're just mm-hmm. taught the history of your triumphant country um, mm-hmm. at school. He's very struck at one point by a quote that uh, Elizabeth Finch gives the class. Uh, I don't don't know if she even identifies it as being that of Ernest Renan, the 19th century French philosopher and historian. And it's a wonderful and profound remark, which is getting its history wrong is part of being a nation. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say which would be more, which would be interesting, but more banal. Getting its history wrong is part of becoming a nation mm-hmm. because we all know that there's a creation myth. Every country has a creation mm-hmm. myth. We defeated the invaders. We fought, fought them on the beaches, et cetera, et cetera. But, but his, his point is more profound. Getting its history wrong is part of being a nation. In order to continue to be a nation, you have to continue to get your history wrong and to retell it in a particular way. We need more of looking at the past. I mean, especially in 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 Britain, you know, where our, our, our colonial history and our history uh, involvement, deep involvement in the slave trade, has been sort of you know pretty much whitewashed for hundreds of years, um, and it's slowly coming to the surface. I mean, other nations do it differently. I mean, the Germans are famous for re-examining their past in a much more um, serious and fundamental way. Um, we, or, or the conservative side in my country, thinks that as soon as you say, oh, but that person actually, he was a slave trader as well as, as a financier, um, you're sort of somehow trying to tear down and destroy what is our history. But our history is their history rather than our history. 
Um, and so there are lots of histories. And this is one of the things that Elizabeth Finch leads Neil to, the notion mm -hmm. that it could have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Alexander Pope in Essay on Man has the line, whatever is, is right. And he's going to justify God's ways to man. But whatever is, isn't necessarily right. It's what we've been presented at, with um, at a certain point when we were born into this world. Um, and so he gets Neil, she gets Neil to reflect on what would have happened had Julian the Apostate, having brought the mm -hmm. Roman Empire out of Christianity and um, reintroduced paganism, uh, what if he had not just lived for 18 months and then been killed and then Christianity took over for the rest of the time? What would have been avoided was um, the immense destruction uh, and violence by the early Christians. Um, they, they, were, they were famously violent and mainly, mainly violent in internecine strife. Um, the Christians killed mm -hmm. 300 times more of their own than were killed by the Romans. You know, we think, oh, Romans, they just dragged Christians into the Colosseum and had them eaten by lions. Well, no, actually, they didn't kill many uh, Christians compared to the number of Christians killed by their fellow Christians. Um, and then there's the immense destruction of Greek and Latin uh, texts, mm -hmm. um, monuments, paintings, sculptures, um, 98 percent is the figure generally agreed of of the amount of greek and roman texts that were destroyed and disappeared they just wanted to destroy and wipe out hellenistic civilization the thing that i appreciated about having this piece and and it's a not insignificant piece of the book about julian one i didn't know anything about julian until mm -hmm. i picked up elizabeth finch my educational background was less about the Greeks and the Romans and a little bit more about East Asia. So I sort of skedaddled mm -hmm. in a different direction. But the idea that we can turn to fiction and we can turn to a novel and we can have Neil's input. This is, I mean, this is Neil telling the story of Julian through his experience of Elizabeth. Like if, if there hadn't been Elizabeth, we wouldn't have Neil writing on no. Julian. And, and you can't separate the three. And yet, I'm not sure I would have the same response if someone handed me a biography of Julian the Apostate and said, here, it, you know, you really should, this, this is a foundational work, you should look at this. I'm not sure I would accept that with glee. No, I don't think I would have done either. <laughs> I, I, might have been, I might have been vaguely intrigued by us both being called Julian. I studied a bit of Latin at school, but mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know anything about uh, Greek and, and Latin history. Uh, when I was I, I I studied modern languages, I was I mm -hmm. was uh, I, I was interested in in modern things, not old things. Um, but then, then you know these things come at you, and you think, no, this matter is still alive. Mm -hmm. And also, he was he seems to be a very admirable figure. Julian um, mm -hmm. he was very clever. He wrote a great deal, but mm -hmm. it, some of which has survived. About a third. Which has survived. He used to. Well, he wrote a great deal. He he dictated a great deal. He dictated at such speed that he needed two scribes at the same time because he because he was dictating too fast. Um, 
And he wrote all sorts of stuff. He wrote he wrote a wrote a famous attack on Christianity, some of which has survived. And he wrote mm -hmm. satires and he wrote pensées and things like that. Um, and he was, uh, you know, he was a proper intellectual as well as being a a good soldier. On the other hand, you know, he did that thing of going into Persia, which is always a mistake. Alexander the Great made it. Mm -hmm. it I felt like when I was reading Elizabeth Finch too that history was sort of this undercurrent the way biography was in Flaubert's Parrot. And the structure, obviously, of the two novels is very different. I mean, Flaubert, you could argue, is a little more experimental. People are not fully aware of the history they carry around with them. They are not fully aware of the history that they're creating. It's just, it's this history becomes so very real for Neil once Elizabeth dies. She leaves him his paper, her papers and her library, yes, which yes. I wasn't quite expecting that. I mean, it makes sense in the not, but the first time I read the line, I was like, oh, wait, she's, she's left him the important things, the really important things, her notebooks. Yes, notes. But, but her notes are missing. There are seven, five or six volumes of notes missing, mm -hmm. which we are, which we are, notebooks missing, which we are meant to think might have been her attempt to write the story of Julian the Apostate which is now handed on to him. But going back to your point about history, I mean, that is, I quoted earlier the, the, the Renoir line of, I guess, getting its history wrong is part of the information. And it comes, it repeats, it's a motif. Mm -hmm. um, a big, the next, its next recurrence is um, getting its history wrong is part of being a religion, which of course is, 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 is very clear. Religious history is full of, full of falsehoods. Um, all those, all those wonderful martyrs, um, most of whom didn't exist, made up by the early Christians to, uh, to, to, to make a, a vivid and convincing history. And then a bit later, he has getting its history wrong is part of being a family. And I think that that's for another book, maybe. You know, but, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the myths we live, uh, we live by in a family are quite creative often. And then... Uh, getting getting one's history wrong is part of being a person. It comes down to to that as well. And of course, we do we we all self mythologize while being confident that we're not unreliable narrators. You've talked in the past too that when you sit down to start a novel, there's always a situation. And it's more the idea that gets you started. Yeah. Can we talk about what that moment was for Elizabeth Fitch? I mean, obviously. You know, Anita is there in the background, but again, not a Ramona Clay. But did it start with Neil? Did it start with Julian? Did it start with just an idea that you had on a Thursday? Julian the Apostate was there earlier mm -hmm. uh, because, as I said, I, I, I read this line of Swinburne's now as confident, mm -hmm. and that, that just lodged in my brain, mm -hmm. um, though it didn't sort of start to grow until... Um, soon before I wrote the novel. Um, and it's, it's, hard to it's hard to describe the very early process because making the book sort of somehow destroys the memory of the difficulties <laughs> and the way you got there. It's mm -hmm. funny because, because uh, no, I'm, I'm trying to answer as honestly as possible. You go through lots of drafts, you go through lots of mistakes, but you kind of forget them because when you get to the final version, it's not useful to remember uh, where you went wrong or ex precisely where you started. And often 
I, I think I would have started with the idea of um, a woman uh, slightly out of this world um, uh, leading people towards truths that were different from the ones they'd expected. It, I, mean, I mean, I didn't formulate it like that. I, there's no note mm -hmm. saying that. But, but, but at the the point where you're fumbling and actually in a kind of state of reverie. Um, something like that was beginning to to form in my mind um and i think i can just about remember thinking yes but how do the two things come together how do the two things come together and they come together uh, in the parallel characters of uh, elizabeth finch and julian the apostate and also in the fact that she is the one who leads neil to julian the apostate and and explains uh, history in the way that makes him um, a fascinating figure for Neil and I hope for us. I learned that Hermione Lee is one of your very early readers for it sounds like all of your books and if somehow you don't know who she is she's the biographer of Tom Stoppard and Virginia Woolf and Penelope Fitzgerald among other books but uh, those are the primary that you should absolutely know. Can I ask what she said to you when you passed this book off to her in draft? which was quite correct that the middle section was too long and a bit rambling. <laughs> uh, and I also sent it to my brother, who is a, who's, um, a classicist, mm -hmm. uh, philosopher, and it, he, quite by chance, he happened to be working on the uh, early Christian church, a book about the early Christian church. In our old age, we have a very friendly and non-combative relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But it, it was almost as if um, it was time for him to put me in my place. And he points out, <laughs> out all sorts of things which are wrong. And also, I introduced things in the wrong way. And it's, it, it's true that then they both picked up on the second part being not fully formed mm -hmm. and, and not, a, not a smooth enough n narrative for readers who don't, didn't know about Julian the Apostate. And also, um, I was putting things in the wrong order. So they were both in their different uh -huh. ways very helpful about that. I mean, I think you you can't ever outgrow the point where you don't need um, a sympathetic, critical uh, input. Um, you know, there are examples of writers, novelists, who, who at a certain point become so sure that they know what they're doing that they don't take any um, mm -hmm. lessons. I mean, um, uh, Iris Murdoch's prose is, um, shall we say, uh, at times a bit overcomplicated. And uh, she once got a new publisher, my great friend, um, founder of Virago Press, Carmen Khalil. And Carmen said two things. Yeah, I got this, I got this typescript from um, from Iris, and you know, it's the filthiest typescript I've ever seen. I mean, so it's bacon rinds used as markers and things like that in it. So I made various, many suggestions to her. And she wrote back and she said, thank you very much for your kind suggestions. Now I'll put it back all as it was. Oh. And, and I think <laughs> I think that's perhaps why, as the later books are perhaps harder to read than the earlier ones. Um, you know, King's Amos was another. He wouldn't take any, he wouldn't take a, a comma change. He wouldn't have a comma changed. 
I, I think you have to stay open to, you know, Ian McEwan, he sends his books in TypeScript to three or four mm-hmm. friends, some old, old friends and old readers and some uh, particularly targeted for what, what the book is dealing with. Um, so he sent the, the latest, I'm not giving away any professional secrets, I'm sure he'll talk about it, but he... <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Tim Garden Ash, the, 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 the political and historical writer, um, mm-hmm. knows a great deal about Germany. Um, he, he, he read the typescript of, of Ian's, Ian's book, Secrets, and was apparently quite helpful on Germany, mm-hmm. where some of the action takes place. Your papers are now at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, yes, yes. So... They and they go to a certain. I think they go up to twenty fifteen. So does this mean they'll get the rest at some point? I presume. I, I, how does I, that work? Well, <laughs> I I sold them. Uh, there's a certain point. I was always I was always obsessive about my papers. You know, uh-huh. I kept every draft of everything I'd written. I kept drafts of journalism. I was sort of fetishistic about it. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, they would follow me around from lodging to lodging and. Um, in the house where I currently live and have lived for nearly 40 years, um, it was previously owned by a photographer. And there's a little sort of, it's like a little larder, but it has a fireproof door and he kept all his um, photographic negatives in it. So that if the house burnt down, his photographic negatives would be safe. I thought, ah, this is just the place for my for my papers. So I had a big metal trunk and I put them in there. Put them in there and at a certain point, and I can't explain why, they stopped being. They stopped having any fetishistic value for me. Mm-hmm. They were mm-hmm. just. They were just large amounts of paper, which had, which were the route to what I finally published, and so I thought, oh well, you know, why not get rid of them? Um, and I just investigated it, and I had been. I'd been. I'd been to um, the Harry Ransom Centre. Mm-hmm many years before and, and was charmed and delighted by it and, and their seriousness of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I investigated um, selling them to the British Library or something like that, but there were, uh, there were, there were many complications. Um, and I just thought, actually, it's quite nice that someone in a foreign country wants my papers and will be prepared to pay more than the, the library in my own <laughs> And then I also thought, well, you know, there'll be all those notebooks and then there'll be sort of, eventually there'll be diaries and stuff like that. And I I live in a very, you know, sort of um, gossipy uh, culture. Mm. And um, I thought, well, it'd be quite nice that the chap from the local London newspaper doesn't just have to go down to near Euston Station and look at all my diaries. He did have to go to Texas. Though so, uh, I thought, well, that's good. I got them there. Um, <laughs> though, of course, you know, by the time by the time I'm dead, and by, everything will be everything will be digitalized anyway, and so it doesn't matter where the actual physical objects are in terms of, of scholarly access to it. I think there's something to be said for paper, though. I mean, when I prep for interviews, I need to work off of paper. I can read digitally, obviously, and and yeah. it's convenient. But when I'm really sitting down to think about a conversation, I just, I need paper and I really like pencil. <laughs> so yes, when I'm marking yes, up yes, my galleys, yes. 
Yes, yes. Destroy yes. galleys with pencil, and then I've got these crazy, you know, documents that I use maybe a tenth of when I sit down to speak you with know, someone. Do you know Palomino Blackwing pencils? I do, and I quite like them. <laughs> yep. They are the best. They are they the best are. pencils. They have an eraser at one end, and they have a special sharpener, which you buy mm-hmm. especially for this. All of us who deal with any form of writing have have, have, have fetishes. And, you know, it's it's notebooks. They, they have to be the mm-hmm. right size notebooks. They have to be with those sort of that squared French paper in them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I love them. I've got so many book, notebooks just mm-hmm. there, which I will never fill. But you, you can't have too many notebooks. You can't have too many felt tip pens mm-hmm. and so on. No, I'm very much um, a, a non-digital person, even though I, I obviously I'm talking to you that way and I, I write my journalism on, on my computer. But mm-hmm. books, the serious stuff, mm-hmm. it, often starts, it often starts with a pencil in my hand and a notebook. Um, and, then, and then lots of notes. And then I start in with a a very old IBM electric typewriter. Oh, you still have an electric typewriter? Electric typewriter, yes. In fact. Oh wow. Can, can there it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, there a, it is. It's, it's an IBM go for it's a 196C and I've got two of them in case one breaks down. Right. And spares are very hard to get. Um and I I you know I hope I hope I never have to write on a computer because the only time I tried it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It didn't work for didn't work for me anyway. Talk to Ian about it. He thinks it, it works absolutely for him. And he thinks that his that that the computer thinks very much like a human brain thinks. Well yeah. that's Ian's that's Ian's brain. I was about to say that sounds that like Ian, not you. <laughs> My brain looks like an electric typewriter. Also, the other thing is that uh, a, a computer is, it's inert, it's, mm, yes. it's silent, it doesn't have an opinion, whereas my electric typewriter makes this hum, and it's very companionable, and it's mm-hmm. as if it's saying, just, I'm here, yep, whenever you need me, I'm not rushing you, I'm just humming, letting you know I'm here, good, okay, clackety, clackety, clack, um, and it's... Uh, you know, th- these things are just so, so much of writing is, is um, about intellect and feeling and form and style and so on. Mm-hmm. But there are bound to be areas where you just need something visceral. You need mm-hmm. something like <laughs> being cheered up by a humming electric typewriter. <laughs> if that's what gets you to the right word, I'm okay with that because you are so precise in your language, and this is something you've always shared with Flaubert, who's been a massive influence for you over time. Yes. I mean, you've said that you started reading in French as a teenager. And I, Flaubert's parrot still charms me. I picked it up before we were going to sit down and talk. And it's been a, it's been a while since I've read it. And, you know, there's Gerald being Gerald. <laughs> Writers can only do one thing. Flaubert knew this. Writers can only do one thing. And I'm like, oh, right. I remember this voice. (laughs) I remember this voice. And I feel like you still carry Flaubert around with you. I mean, certainly you pull from different places and you've been doing this long enough where you know what works for you. But 
Can we just talk about Flaubert for a second? Because he is kind of one of my favorites. And Bovary, I had to come back to, and I suspect we don't actually completely agree on Lydia Tra- Davis's translation of Bovary, but she's uh, no. the one who brought me back. I, I would give up. Yes. And I was yes. like, oh, I just needed someone to put a different lens on this mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for yes. me. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, my beef with her translation was mm-hmm. that, and it's a, it's a fashion in, in translation, is syntactical tracking, right. which means that you make the, you make the foreign, you make the English sentence as far as possible follow the progression of the foreign sentence. But this is often very counter to what English grammar is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, 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 it often strikes my ear. I often prefer translations which are done uh, as soon as possible after the original work. I mean, mm-hmm. I, know that, I know that the great Russians have been retranslated recently and, uh, and, and, and they will probably be more um, accurate as to the original text. But sometimes, I mean, I, I slightly prefer my, my translations loose rather than very, very fiercely um, tethered. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I like, you know, Constance Garnett was a wonderful translator of the Great mm-hmm. Russian. Mm-hmm. And I'd often, often rather read them, not, and also because the prose is the prose of that time. So it's right. being translated like, you know, 20 or 30 years later, but it's, it's a prose which is 100 years away from us or more. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, you, so you have that as a way of getting into the period by itself. Sam Taylor has a particularly great translation of a French novel called HHHH by Laurent Binet. Yes, yes, yes. And it flies. And it's about a plot to kill Himmler. Yes, yes, I read it. Yes, it's wonderful. It's really terrific. And I just, I had never experienced a modern translation like that. And also it turns out that Sam, I think, writes YA on the side as well, which I I did not expect. But that HHHHH just moves. And I was like, I can't believe I'm completely, completely caught up in this. You tend to write shorter novels. Yes. Which I very much appreciate. <laughs> is, is that connected to the journalism at all, or is that just the way you approach story and the way you just this is what I have to say in the moment? Um yes. Um I you know, my longest my longest novel was Arthur and George, which I think is about four hundred and fifty pages or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Four hundred and fifty to possibly five hundred if they set it loosely. Um, and, and, and History World, 10 and a half chapters is about 320 or so. Um, I, I don't like overstaying my welcome. I, I, mm-hmm. I appreciate concision in, in a novelist. Um, I think that in, in, in my writing lifetime, novels have got longer, uh, not least because they're written on computers. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I like the idea of labour. I like the idea of physical labour in 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 creating uh, a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have reference books, you you browse in them a lot more. If you look something up online on Wikipedia or whatever, or, or on the digital version of the Oxford Dictionary, you look up the word and there it is. But you don't sort of get the wrong page and look at a different word first and so on. 
And I like the sort of, both the sort of slight element of labour, but also the hazard of, of looking things up in, in books. Serendipity matters. Yes, it does. We don't have enough serendipity anymore. That's it's very true. easy. That's it's hard to get lost now when you have a computer in your pocket. Yes. And to take a wrong turn and then you can immediately fix the situation, but then maybe you miss out on a very pretty block or a yes. coffee shop that you've never seen before. Yes. And I, and I also, miss serendipity. I miss yes, it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I miss maps, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People, people don't use maps anymore. I have driving maps and I take them out and I realize that everyone else has some um, something like Waze or Google Maps or whatever. And so... So people don't need to know how to get to places. And and so, for instance, I have, I mean, I've lived in London since I was about nine, mm-hmm. eight, seven. No, it's, no, since I was about nine weeks. Um, oh. <laughs> I've lived in parts and I've been to school here. And, and, I, and, and I have a very strong sense of where everything is in the city. Mm-hmm. And yet, when I go out with a younger person and on a trip, and they use their, um, you know, their digital system of guidance, I, I realise that they have. This doesn't give them a map in the head right. of, of what of what what the city is. Um, they'd say they don't need it, and um, but one of these days, you know, all the electrical stuff is going to break down, uh, and we'll go back to paper maps. And you could also argue that a map in the head is memory. Mm-hmm. I mean, memory is a huge part of it's it's a huge part of many of your books, but certainly yes. Elizabeth Finch. Yes. I mean, the memories that Neil uses to construct his version yes. of Elizabeth. Yes. Yes. I mean, Elizabeth's brother doesn't even quite know who she is, which you know he wouldn't be the first sibling in the history of the world to not know his younger sibling. No, no, no he wouldn't indeed. No. No, I think, and I think also as you enter your later years, um, but time and memory are, are big, become bigger and bigger subjects. Right. Uh, and what what time does to memory, mm-hmm. and and what memory does to time, you know, it's uh, uh, and and also how unreliable. Increasingly, you realise how unreliable memory mm-hmm. memory is. Um, I had a long. Um, discussion with my brother when I was writing a book called Nothing to be Frightened of, which is mm-hmm. mainly, about, mainly about death, but it's also mm-hmm. a sort of family memoir. And we we had email exchanges about it. And I'd say, do you remember this? And do you remember how grandpa used to kill the chickens and things like that? Mm-hmm. And um, he, he had very different memories from me of our childhood. Um, and he, being a philosopher, he said, "I find all memory is un- is 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 not to be relied on unless there's corroboration." Um, but you know, there wasn't corroboration coming from me in our exchanges because we we had completely different memories. Um, and that actually, I was thinking about this quite recently because I was thinking about we only had one set of grandparents, my mother's parents. Um, and, and and they were. She taught. Uh, she was. She was. She was an interesting woman who, um, who started off brought up as a Methodist, lost her faith, became a socialist, lost her faith in socialism, became a communist. Moment of the Sino-Soviet schism, she decided to side with the Chinese, 
This is a woman who had never been out of England and who lived in <laughs> the, the suburbs of London. Right. And I thought, how, how wonderful um, that she's 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 become a Chinese communist because I was a stamp collector and she used to get these magazines from China with amazing stamps on. So, And I thought she was sort of nice, lovely and warm and, and so on. I was afraid of my grandfather. Um, he was a sort of stern. He'd been in the First World War and he was a headmaster of, and, and retired. And so I was rather wary of him. My brother, on the other hand, was very close to my grandfather because he was the firstborn and my grandfather was, you know, favoured him, left him mm -hmm. his tool chest of carpentry tools, things like that. Um, and my brother thought that my grandmother was this sort of boring little woman who did, just made bad apple pies and things like that. Um, and I realised that we are the only two people who remember them. Now, everyone else is dead. You know, we don't have, we don't have a large family. There is no abiding truth about these two people. Right. There are only divergent opinions um, held by my brother and me. And I'm sure I'm right, and he's sure he's right. But we could both be right. You know, we we we. My my grandfather was may have been authoritarian, but also soft-hearted, and so on. My grandmother may have been uh, very kind and always looked after me because I was the soppy one, and. And and yet, you know, and so on. Life is a novel, you know. Life mm -hmm. is life is competing versions. That's why we love the novel, I think. It why does. We, it will never die. Yeah. It does. It allows us to capture time and change and people yes. in ways that other arts don't. Can I ask what's next? I mean, Elizabeth Finch is out in the world and you always seem to have multiple projects from what uh, I can tell. I, I, I used to, I used to. I was, I was actually, Ian McKeown came to supper two, two nights ago and we were just, it was just the two of us. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, what's new? What's on the way? I said, I haven't got a single idea. And he said, nor have I. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> We, we console ourselves with the fact that at the moment we have nothing. I mean, there's always some sort of terrible soup out there, which mm -hmm. is you stir around it and you think, mm, and then you think, no, no, that one won't run, and so on. As you pointed out, I've written 25 books, which is quite mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. They're only half that of, of the great John Updike. And so I think, I think. Well, you know, this wouldn't be a bad one to go out on. But I expect this is a passing phase. I mean, I keep myself busy. Uh, you know, I do I, I, I do bits of, I do journalism, I write reviews, mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, I've always done journalism as well. And if I couldn't um, have a different sort of order there, I would, I would, I would be very grumpy. Um, so I, I, I have to keep writing. I also need to go back to your Flaubert at 200 piece. Oh, yes. I, I think I need to spend some more time with oh. that piece. So I'm delighted to know that the journalism and the criticism and the essays are still coming. We yes. can wait for another book. It's okay. Yes. You, don't, you don't need another book soon. No. I, and no. I do. The one thing I want to encourage people to do with Elizabeth Finch, too, is sit with it. It's it's deceptively slim, which I love. I mean, like Julio Tsuka's last novel, The Swimmers, which is 
also very deceptively, it's 159 pages. But the amount of territory and, and emotion and memory that you cover in this very petite page count yeah. is not to be dismissed. It's very difficult to write expansively and tightly at the same time. <laughs> and I think people sometimes think, oh, well, it's a very short book, so it's very easy. I can just tear through it. And this is not a book that's designed to be torn through. <laughs> yes. Well, I hope. And, you know, you, I, don't mind, I don't mind really how people read me as long as they mm-hmm. read me. And, and the, of course, the best, the best notes and letters you get are those that say, I got to the end of it and I thought, hmm, I think I'll read it again. Because, and this is one of the great differences between journalism and literature, which I both of which I practice, in that you write journalism in order for everything to be absolutely clear at the full reading, at the first reading, and no ambiguity, and everything as clear as clear. And you write, you write fiction not in order to confuse, but you write fiction in order to, to reflect the complexity of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that complexity isn't necessarily grasped at first reading. That's very, very, very true. Julian Barnes, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The new novel is Elizabeth Finch, and it's out now. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Elizabeth Finch. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from my home store in... Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in if you're okay. Of course. Thank you very much because I'm very excited. I love Julian Barnes. I'm very stoked for his new book. Um, And I decided to choose a book by the author Anita Bruckner, who inspired the character of Elizabeth Finch. Uh, She was a very close friend of Julian Barnes. Uh, So pretty fitting uh, that we would talk about her today. She is also a prolific writer. She's got a incredible body of work. Uh, She didn't start writing books until she was in her 50s. She wrote 23 books before she passed away. um, And they are all fantastic. But we'll go with her Booker Prize winner, Hotel Du Lac. Uh, This is a very dry comedy of manners. Uh, It follows the character Edith, who is a ghostwriter for romance novels. And she is in the midst of a scandal. Um, Details of which I will spare you, those become unfolded as the book goes on. Um, And her peers decide that the best course of action to sweep this under the rug is to send her off to a hotel during the off season in Switzerland. Uh, Essentially giving her some isolated quiet to get her head straight. And that way she can come back, woman up, and be the picture of womanhood that they all perceive is the best course of action. Um, Edith, Edith is not that person. She is mousy. She's quiet. Um, she is a little lonely too. Um, but she goes anyway. She's going to use this time to the best of her ability um, and see what happens. And uh, during her adventure there, uh, she gets sewn into the lives of some of the people who are staying at the hotel. It's pretty sparsely populated at this point. It's during the off season, kind of autumn. Um, but she starts to observe and make opinions of and just become wrapped up in the lives of these people, including a gentleman who I believe wants to 
pursue something a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just really like the way Anita Bruckner writes. Um, she is wry. She is dry. She is quiet and subtle and snarky in a very nuanced way. Um, and she's a great observational writer. Uh, she knows people really, really well. And this book is just a fantastic way to explore secrets and what happens when the, we let those secrets out for good or for ill. Um, it's just a very sublime slow burn. I love it so much. Uh, so check out Hotel Dulac by Anita Bruckner. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Yay. Oh, um, so yeah, so I actually um, picked someone who I thought was very similar to Julian Barnes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that author is Kazuo Ishiguro. <gasps> Uh. You know, Um, and I went with, um, I think it's his newest book, uh, Clara and the Sun. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, yay. I love it. Um, So anyway, uh, like I said, I picked uh, him because I think he and Jillian Barnes are very similar in the way that they tell stories. They're very slow, subtle, matter of fact, um, and they just, things happen in told in just a, a very quiet way that the characters themselves never freak out, but you as the reader are, yeah. <laughs> you're the one that's like, what is happening? You're freaking out over things like you should be mad about this or your heart is breaking. And, and the characters are just going through it all quietly. Oh. Ugh, it Anyway. So Clara and the sun, um, you will fall in love with Clara. Uh, we meet her um, in a store because she is an artificial friend. Um, So basically kind of a robot doll for teenagers. Um, And this is in a dystopian future. So basically she's there so that kids don't get lonely (laughs) Um, is kind of the idea. And so we meet her in the shop where she is um, observing everything that's going on, both in the shop and then through that front window where she gets to see the sun and she gets to see people walk by. And, and so she, oh, She's so sweet and innocent and naive. And so you're, you're reading her observations and they are just <sighs> adorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, so, and she's dreaming really um, and hoping for someone to pick her, that she'll get to go home with a family. And she does. And then, um, and we just get to follow her through all of it. Um, like I said, you're just going to fall in love with Clara. She is so sweet and innocent and just pure. Um, and, and the things that occur to her are not always. And so you, you are left heartbroken sometimes of just what's happening and you're like, but no, um, but it's, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't know. I just couldn't stop. I could just talk about this book forever. It's so beautiful. Um, and it just, it's another one of those books that explores what it means to be human, but also what it means to love someone but also then be loved by your, you know, loved yourself. Um, so anyway, uh, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Please pick it up. Oh my God. <laughs> I could talk about that author all the day. I, yeah. I love him so much. It's oh. such a good book. Everything he writes is brilliant. Much like Julian Barnes, yes. you're right. It's it's that subtlety. It's that, that outrage that they allow the readers to have so that the characters can, yes. can, accept their lot in life Ugh. where we are like no yes. no no These no no, 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 no. <laughs> yes oh my gosh it's so brilliant oh um well 
Thank you so much for tuning in to Pour It Over. That's all we've got for today. Um, please make sure to give us some support with the rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thank you all so much. Have a wonderful day. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.